the FAA revises guidance on LOTAs, and it's good news and bad. I'm Paul Plack, and this is Aero News. Welcome into the Aero News special feature. Thanks for downloading us today. My guest is David Ord, who is the government and advocacy specialist with the Experimental Aircraft Association. And uh, one of the things that's happened in the past few days, well, actually last month, but it only came to light through the FAA's electronic document system in the last few days, is new instructions finally, after about three years, have been issued to local field service district offices, allowing them to resume the issuance of letters of deviation authority for training in experimental aircraft. For a while, it's been the case that for a lot of the things people needed LOTUS for, they had to go through Washington for a while. And that was a slow and uh, ill-defined process. So, David, thanks for joining me and uh, helping us straighten this out. Tell us what your first reaction is to this new document from the FAA and the instructions to the FISDOs. Well, my, my first reaction is that all of our hard work over the last you know, two years, three years even for that matter, uh, is finally paying off. Um, as you know, the, the FAA did issue letter of deviation authority guidance last year, However, it, it fell far short of what we were hoping it would do. Um, this new revision was talked about at the EAA-FAA Winter Summit in February. We all had top FAA management and ourselves from EAA in the room talk, talking about this very subject, and we all agreed, you know, we have to get a revision out there ASAP. Now, you know, gov- government's not the fastest-moving uh, body in the world, but, uh, you know, this is pretty quick. And so this is finally released, and it does three huge things. It allows for primary training in rotorcraft gyroplanes. It allows the previously exempted ELSAs that were the, on the lower and slower end that were giving training, that had training deviations to give primary instruction towards the certificate. And it allows any ELSA that is ultralight-like to give training towards ultralight vehicles, which is key for safety. And if we're going to truly increase the safety of GA on this side of the spectrum of aviation, this document is key. I would make an interesting distinction here, and that is that this all deals with instruction for compensation and goes back to the the premise that you cannot use under the FAR an experimental aircraft for hire or compensation, including flight instruction, without having a letter of deviation authority. That's absolutely true. You cannot use any aircraft issued a certificate under Part 21 Oh shoot! What was it? Twenty-one one ninety-one. Any any aircraft that has an experimental certificate, you cannot use for compensation. Now, an instructor can instruct in that aircraft, but he or she cannot receive compensation for the aircraft. The only way to to be recompensated for that aircraft is to get a letter of deviation authority, which is under ninety-one three nineteen part H. Okay, and and that's where the bottleneck has been for the past few years. Now, let's talk about. Um, the varying classes of aircraft here and what it means to each of them. One of the big problems was that uh, the FAA, when Sport Pilot came about and, and Light Sport Aircraft, said that we're going to give you a window uh, in which you can train an experimental Light Sport Aircraft. But, you know, when the cutoff date comes, uh, we expect all training to be transitioned to, to special Light Sport Aircraft, which have a higher uh, regulatory um, level of regulatory supervision, I guess you would say, and, and um, in terms of you know continuing airworthiness and all that that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And when the deadline arrived, there just weren't enough machines out there to make a viable training fleet. Um, and this especially 
impacted guys like the powered parachute guys. Tell us what this change means to them. Well, what it means to the powered parachute guys is, and you're exactly right, before January 31st of last year, that was the cutoff date. So you, you could have had a training deviation to give compensated training in aircraft. Actually, that was, a tra- that was the date that you could switch your two-place ultralight, a fat ultralight, over. But it was envisioned that when the training deviation under 91319E went away, there would be a sizable fleet of SLSA that would that meet the definition of powered parachutes, trikes, uh, and uh, fixed-wing aircraft. But unfortunately, because of economic forces, market demand, who knows, that fleet has never materialized. As it relates to airplanes, there are less than a handful, uh, I think there was four last time I counted, of SLSAs that are actually out there in the market that have a VH less than 87 knots. And per the regulations, in order to fly an aircraft, an airplane that has a VH less than 87 knots, you have to have an endorsement from an instructor, which means if I want to go get my endorsement, I have to seek out one of these four aircraft and find an instructor to fly in that aircraft and then to get that uh, endorsement on my, in my logbook in order to operate that aircraft. It's just not a very feasible way to get your training. And, and oftentimes you would have to travel mo- many states, especially for powered parachutes. I mean, if I wanted to get an endorsement to fly a pair of parachutes, I would more than likely have to fly, drive all the way down to Illinois right now in order to get primary training in a SLSA powered parachute. This deviation authority will allow the guys that previously had a training deviation operated very effectively at a very safe record. They would allow those guys to get a training deviation, a LODA, that would allow them to give me primary instruction towards an endorsement or certificate. Okay, now how did this affect the guys who, for example, only had a sport pilot rating in one of those aircraft and needed a flight review? Well, the same thing. Uh, you, you couldn't use the aircraft for compensation. So if it was your own aircraft, you, you'd be fine. But if you didn't have an aircraft, you, you would literally have to travel multiple states in order to find training. In order to find an instructor with an aircraft that, you know, essentially an SLSA. Okay, now, this has obviously opened things back up a little bit, but the the question everybody is asking and nobody has data on yet is how many of these guys have managed to survive and still own these aircraft uh, while this long wait was going on? Because a lot of them will have been sold or, you know, passed on to other people in some some manner. Well, that that is the million-dollar question, because if you're going to do it for sport pilot training in an ELSA that was previously exempted, in order to get a LOTA, you have to have had that aircraft and instructing before January 31st of last year. So a lot of the, lot of the guys out there, they, they became so disenfranchised with this long process, they either sold their aircraft or just said, you know, I'm, I'm done. I'm getting out of the sport. Well, if they did that, they are not eligible to apply and, and get a loaded to redo what they were doing for the last five years. Does EAA have any kind of read on what the difference in cost is between the SLSA and ELSA versions of some of these aircraft? You know, it, it really depends. A lot of the ELSAs, and this is an important uh, point too, most of the ELSAs out there that were the two-place ultralight trainers, we don't really know how they were built. Some of them were factory built. Some of them were home built. A lot of them, we just don't know. I mean, and they, did not, they weren't built to any, necessarily any uh, consistent standards. ELSAs going forward have to be built and, and be an exact replica of uh, an SLSA, which meets all of the ASTM consensus standards for light sport aircraft. 
as far as what the cost difference is, because we don't know how they were really manufactured or built, we don't know the cost of the ELSAs. But most of the, most people would say they're at least double the cost. So it's a hard sell for for somebody that had a training deviation and an ELSA that and they did it safely for the last five years to say, okay, I have this aircraft. And oftentimes an SLSA is is almost the exact aircraft, but now you have to pay double in order to get this SLSA. Now, granted, it does meet consistent standards, and it's designed to a higher level, but still, it's a hard sell for those guys because they're going to have to front a lot of money that a lot of times they just don't have right now. And with the state of the uh, flight training market, there's not a whole lot of guys begging you, you know, knocking on your door seeking uh, flight instruction. So you're going to have to pay a lot of money, and you might not recoup that money for quite some time. And in some cases, you have to do all the other things that go along with rebuilding a business, If you were, even if it was a part-time business. And the irony is that the old ELSAs that came in as grandfathered fat ultralights are, if anything, from a regulatory and safety standpoint, they have to, to the FAA, be scarier than the new ELSAs, which you'd buy today, which you know, have to be a clone of an SLSA. That's correct. There, there's a lot of, uh, there, there are some people out there that, that would have preferred the ELSAs, the, the two-place ultralight trainers, just to go away. And if they did not recertificate those aircraft after January 31st of last year, they, they essentially are. They're away. There, there's no remedy of recertificating that aircraft. I think of those, uh, those severely rusted antique farm implements I see as lawn art. And I think of these old fat ultralights now if they didn't make the deadline. You're right. But I will say, I mean, the, the ELSAs that were exempted under the training deviation, they have a very safe record. Um, they, they, I don't believe there was any mechanical, uh, any fatalities due to uh, a mechanical failure or a structural design failure. Uh, so even though they might not look all, all shiny and polished like some of the SLSAs that are out there now, I mean, they were pretty safe operating aircraft. And and also, being having a VH less than 87 knots, being high-drag, low-mass aircraft, the inertia forces, you know, it, it, it's a little bit, it's tougher to get into the scenarios that would be fatal as it concerns uh, uh, an aircraft uh, accident. We'll be back for more with EAA's David Ord in a moment. I'm Paul Platt. You're listening to a special feature from Aero News. Diamond Aircraft's new DA-40 Diamond Star XL includes all popular Diamond options, combined with a sensational new Garmin GFC 700 Autopilot, a higher performance power plant, and increased gross weight. This makes the Diamond Star XL the perfect choice for affordable personal flying. The Diamond Star XL features equipment and enhancements that increase performance, capability, safety, convenience, and comfort. Visit Diamond on the web at www.diamondair.com or call 888-359-30. 220. Welcome back to the Aero News Special Feature. I'm Paul Plack with David Ord of EAA, and we're breaking down the FAA's new guidance to FISDOs on the issuance of letters of deviation authority for training and experimentals. Let's talk a little bit about gyroplanes because obviously um, I have an interest in that side of the sport. Uh, things are a little bit different for the gyroplane community because the the FAA will not allow there to be at this t- point in time any uh, SLSA or even ELSA gyroplanes. So the entire instruction community is based around experimental amateur build. In some ways, it's easier to get a load of now for an EAB than it is for an ELSA. 
Absolutely true. Because as far as an ELSA, if you're going to give primary training, you would have had to have had that aircraft and instructing in it before January uh, 31st of, of last year. So, I mean, th- there are there are only a handful of those. And th- being that they're an, SL, I mean, an LSA, I mean, you, you there are better... Um, there are better machines out there. And I, I know there's a lot of people in the gyroplane community that are actively trying to change uh, the regulations to allow, and, and we're doing the same thing. But in, in order to grow that segment, we have to allow the manufacturers to certify aircraft as SLSA that are fully compliant to the standards. You, as well, you know, the standards exist. It's just we need to be allowed to produce aircraft that meet those standards. Do you have a sense that uh, that there's any movement in that regard? Because that is, doesn't even deal with AFS 800. It, it deals with the Rotorcraft Directorate. That's correct. Um, and I, 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 I truly believe that the agency is, is, is realizing that, you know, may, maybe, maybe the time is right. Um, obviously, we're going to have to gather a lot of data. But as you know, gyroplanes in in uh in europe are thriving it's that segment of aviation is really thriving and quite safely as well um i i was i had the privilege to go to aero this last year um this past uh spring and and to see some of the aircraft that they are producing out there is, is quite exciting and i think it, it would be an exciting segment of uh of aviation to grow here because that like i said that that is recreational flying at its best and it really is simple flying if you get down to it. And so there's a stigma of gyros in the – some people consider them dangerous. Some people consider them, you know, uncontrollable. But I think the, the use of them in, in Europe really has proven that's not the case. Well, yeah, they, they figured out the, the physics behind what was wrong with them. And, yep. and, and again, if you look back at the Benson gyrocopter era um, – you know, let's talk again about the human factors. Here was a, a single-place kit that came with a three-ring binder for a training program. <laughs> I mean, what you know, you have to attribute some of of that history to uh, to the fact that that they were kind of underground for so long. You're right, but but in order to get training, now you can read all the books, you can read all the manuals that you want, but in order to get quality training, you have to get your butt in the seat. And experience that, and the, this LOTA finally allows it in writing. It's plain as day. It allows training at, in gyroplanes at all levels. So it doesn't say that you know you have to meet this, 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 and this. And the previous guidance, unfortunately, in order to give training, you had to have uh, your your student had to have category in class. So we had gyroplanes out there with LOTAs, but then their LOTAs said that you had to have uh, category in class in, in order to get get instruction. Well, how are you going to get category in class unless you can, you know, you can you can get training? And so finally, this this revision allows for training at all levels for gyroplane, and students do not have to have category in class, which is critical. When we resume this conversation tomorrow, the bigger question of how the sport pilot and LSA rules have turned out versus how they were envisioned six years ago. David Ord is a government and advocacy specialist with the Experimental Aircraft Association. EAA's dedicated website for LSA and Sport Pilot issues can be found at www.sportpilot.org. You've been listening to a special feature from Aero News. Find us on the web at aero-news.net. I'm Paul Platt. Thanks for listening. Have a clear and unlimited day.